0: The imbalance of power in the workplace is a hazard that affects millions of workers in the United States, especially those in the public sector. One way of addressing this hazard is sharing power through solid labor management relationships. We'll meet a leader of a historic relationship building effort on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Safety at work is more than freedom from physical injury. To be safe, you have to feel safe. Join us each week as we discuss psychologically healthy and safe work in the USA. Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety and learn uh, through the lived experiences, research and expertise of our guests, while also advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. There are those, there are those, uh, with a more traditional approach to the workplace that would argue that the employer has the power and it's up to the worker to conform to the employer's wishes. Uh, this imbalance has convinced some that they can really treat workers really any way that they want. Uh, however, uh, times are changing, uh, but no, in no occupation is this more relevant and more Uh, noticeable than in public safety and specifically in fire rescue service. Each year, hundreds of people uh, make applications to become firefighters, and it's said about 70% of the candidates simply give up because the process is too complicated. However, over the last couple of years through the COVID-19 pandemic, compounded by the rise of concerns about diversity and the Great Resignation, uh, many have recognized as workers, that they have greater power and greater opportunity. And some have actually started to, uh, to, to make that known, to make their voices heard. Uh, one of the ways of making voices heard is the process of collective bargaining. And uh, again, this isn't, isn't common everywhere. Uh, generally on the West Coast of the country, there tend to be more collective bargaining in uh, public sector agencies than there are in the South. But uh, today's guest uh, was involved in a really uh, important move uh, in the Southeast. So uh, my, my guest today is retired Fire Captain Andrea Hall, who in 2019 was elected to serve as the president of the South Fulton Firefighters Union, Local 3920. Uh, her election was very significant in that she was the first African-American female firefighter union president in the history of the country. She also burst onto the national scene when she was chosen to do the Pledge of Allegiance at the Biden-Harris presidential inauguration in January of 2021. I first met then Firefighter Hall uh, (laughs) when we worked together at the Fulton County, Georgia Fire Department some years ago and had the honor of being able to promote her to fire captain, as a matter of fact. She recently retired from the city of South Fulton, but not because she was finished with the fire service, but because she actually has a higher calling, and she's now involved in a national effort to help firefighters organize across the Southeast. A lot to say about uh, a great friend and colleague, uh, Andrea Hall. Uh, How are you doing today?
1: Good morning. Good morning.
0: I'm doing well. Right on, right on, right on. So uh, we're... You know, when I bring guests on the podcast, I you know I try to you know give some of the high points about what I know about their lives, but that's always very limited. And I find that we learn uh, the most about our guests from our guests. So my first question to you is, who is Andrea Hall? Mm.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question because I'm still figuring that out. Um, you know, I'd like to often. I describe myself as sort of a blooming onion. Um, and I, I choose that because, well, you know how onions are, they have some qualities that can make you laugh and make you cry, you know? Uh, but more than anything, there are many layers there. And, and I think it's difficult to just say, you know, Andrea is this particular thing. I think I am have a multi-layered personality. I um, am a woman, I'm an African-American woman. I'm a daughter, I'm a, a aunt. I'm a friend. I'm, a, you know, a lot of different things. I've been leaders of of some really important organizations. I've uh, had an opportunity to, and I use this, you know, air quotes when I say this, trailblaze in some pretty significant ways. Uh, but just to say who Andrea is, I w- I would say I'm a person of integrity. Uh, I'm a person who loves very hard, very deeply. I'm very committed to things that I think are important. I'm a person who stands on her principles. No matter uh, what is happening in the periphery, you know, that's really important to me. Uh, I believe in keeping your word. You know, that's really an old thing. We have a lot of contractual agreements that we put on paper now. But uh, for me, it's about being a person of my word. If I give it to you, you can depend on it. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, if I had to describe you know, myself, those, those would be some
0: adjectives that I would use. So I, I heard that word kind of slipped in there, and, and I was going to get there anyway, uh, about trailblazing. Uh, I, <laughs> and uh, you have blazed a number of trails. Uh, so talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, the opportunities that you have that have been uh, first or, or, or unique for, uh, for folks like yourself.
1: Um, You know, what's interesting about that is I think a lot of the trailblazing is about timing, uh, like where you are in space and time in your life and in the world. Uh, And I also think that trailblazing takes a little bit of naivety, because I think if we knew what was on the other side of that, we would probably choose differently. Um, So I'll say my first foray into what we would consider trailblazing um, in, in in my adult life. Uh, happened when I was 19 years old. I uh, became a firefighter in the city of Albany, Georgia. It's a south uh, southwest Georgia city. And uh, that was in 1993. And believe it or not, there were no women on that department. And uh, I had a cousin who worked there. I was in school at the time, just kind of wandering about, had no real clear idea or direction for what I wanted to do. Well, I, I thought I wanted to, I don't know if you remember the time when we would have to go to the library and they had reference books. This is yes, before yeah. Google. And <laughs> right. so when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I would go to the library into the reference section and look up these, tra- you know, look and see what all the the um, the vocations paid. So I saw that engineers made a lot of money. So I said, you know what? I think I want to be an engineer. (laughs) So I get enrolled in college and I start taking these courses for engineering. And I said, wait a minute. This is a lot of math. That's not my forte. So I said, okay, well, I won't be an engineer. And then I said, well, maybe I'll be a doctor. And I said, okay, that's 10 years. So here I am thinking at 18. Shoot, in 10 years, I'll be 28. That's old. (laughs) I don't want to be a doctor. (laughs) So so, uh, I was on my way to my little part-time job. I was working at Walmart. We were setting up the store and I was just, it was so terrible. I said, this is, is this going to be my life? And, um, I happened to be passing by the fire station where my cousin worked and he was sitting out barbecuing something on the grill, you know, smoking a pipe, looking like my granddad. And I just happened to bust a U.E. and said, let me go back and talk to this guy and see what he does. He issued me a challenge of sorts and I And decided that I wanted to take him up on that. And so uh, that's how I became a firefighter or or even was introduced to the profession. But what I did not anticipate is all of the pushback and the vitriol that would come my way because I was a woman. So here I am, 19 years old, just looking for some direction, um, excited about undertaking this new thing and and pushing myself and challenging myself to see if I could succeed at it. And there were people who were saying, we don't want you here. We don't mm. want you here. We don't have a place for you. We don't, we don't like the idea. You shouldn't even be trying to be here. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? So something, you know, I've had very few moments like this that have happened to me, but I, it, there's a theme here that I've even realized. When I received that sort of pushback, it lit a fire in me. I was determined at that point to succeed. I was determined that they would not um, stop me from being successful because that was the thing. They said, we were going to do everything we can to get you to leave. And I made up in my mind at that point, that was not going to happen ever. (laughs) And so that was a beginning
0: for me. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So you just you've just shared a little bit about what it was like to be in an environment where you didn't feel welcome and the the overarching topic of this podcast and a lot of what I have conversations about today is psychological health and safety and and I so I define uh, a psychosocial hazard is a hazard that is perceived or experienced by the person as a threat Mm -hmm. And it may not be to everyone else, but it is to them. So tell me, what is your, uh, even based on some of the experiences you've had, what do you think psychological health and safety is? What does that mean to you when I say that? Well,
1: I think just that. um, Feeling uh, that you are in a space that is supportive and encouraging of you being you being comfortable being you It doesn't mean that there are no rules or no guidelines. However, those um, whatever those rules and guidelines are, are not things that are established to suppress you, mm. but to support you in mm. your growth and development, your personal uh, and or professional growth and development. Um, I think also it is an environment where you feel comfortable asking for assistance or for help and it, it is not an environment that makes you feel uncomfortable when there uh, may be questions, and so you end up saying, "Well, you know what? I might not want to ask that because that could bring something negative on me." Mm-hmm. That's just my brief. I think different how I would define that briefly.
0: Sure, sure. And and so again, the the fire rescue service is a fairly traditional group of folks, mm-hmm. uh, fairly ho- homogeneous group of folks, I should say, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that sometimes makes it difficult for people that are a little bit different from the norm, whatever that difference is. And you you described coming into the service at 19 and feeling that you weren't necessarily accepted or wanted. Maybe people were just out with that. Right. But you decided to actually do that again in an even larger organization. So, <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, so share a little bit about what that was about.
1: Well, you know, so I was there in 1993 and I had been there for a few years and I was just so unhappy. I could not get comfortable. I, I felt that I was doing everything I could to um, be accepted, to show myself, you know, deserving of uh, being there. And and so, so, so the interesting thing is, and I, we'll talk about this too, from 19 to I would say maybe 30, 31 or 32-ish. Um, I spent a lot of time, I think I was about fifty different people during that time, trying to assimilate to the culture so that I would be accepted. Uh, and so in Albany, it was so uncomfortable, and the the idea that I was not wanted there was was so prevalent, even to the to the point of changing certain sops so that I wouldn't have access to some of the things that were previously available because I was a girl and, you know, a lot of the men didn't want to deal with me. So I didn't want to continue to be in that environment, but I didn't know anybody else like me. I didn't know any other women. Uh, I didn't know if there were even any other women in this business. So fortunately there was a gentleman, his name is John Reed, who is from Albany as well. His parents still live there, but he was uh, with the Fulton County Fire Rescue Department in Atlanta and so every so often he would come home to visit his parents who ironically lived right down the street from my grandparents and so i was at a station that was around the corner from there and as he would go home to visit his parents he would just stop through the fire station and talk with the firefighters and say hey i'm a firefighter you know that sort of thing and i happened to be there one time and i was like hey you know so we struck up a conversation and um that started sort of the relationship that that helped me to get to atlanta but prior to that, I don't know if you remember phone books. You know, Bell South used to phone books, these big phone books. So I would go through the phone book and I look. You know, all the government pages were blue. So I would go through the government pages and I started looking for fire stations in Atlanta, and th- and this time they were long distance. So I would have to spend my little money to call and see, and I would say, "Hey, do you guys have any women there? Do you guys have any women there?" And so they introduced me to this woman. Her name was Lavinia Jenkins. She was at station 23. I'll never forget it. And so I called over to station 23 several days in a row because she was on some vacation. And so I finally got her about a month or so later. And that started sort of the relationship with me and other women in the fire service. And believe it or not, she had a very similar trajectory as mine. But back to John Reed. So these things were happening simultaneously. I was reaching out and searching for someone that i could relate to and then he was coming by the station at the same time and so i said hey um yeah i would like to know more about what you do and so he introduced me to the international association of black professional firefighters we did not have a chapter in albany but he said that you can join as a single member said okay no problem they were having a conference coming up shortly thereafter in memphis tennessee so i went to the conference as a single member of the organization from my, you know, my uh, department. And that was the first time I saw people who looked like me. Mm-hmm. And there were women there who were firefighters and I it just really, I was so excited about that. And so then he told me about some opportunities in Fulton County and I applied and the rest is history. I, believe it or not, I actually got hired because I met a guy at, in Memphis. His name was Jimmy, oh my God, what was Jimmy? Jimmy Hodges. Jimmy Hodges. And we became really great friends. He was a recruiter for Atlanta. And so he really gave me my first opportunity to come to Atlanta. So I got hired with them in 1995, but the Olympics came in 96. So uh, there was a hiring freeze. And that's when John Reed kind of came into the picture and said, hey, we're hiring in Fulton County. So I went to Fulton County instead.
0: And that's how that happened. <laughs> Another long story. But- oh, that. Yeah, that, that, it's an important story. It's an important story because it emphasizes the importance of every individual having to have someone who opens the door for them. Some, someone has to open the door for them. Anytime yes. you go into a new organization, a new group, somebody, somebody, and it's not the yeah. group. Some, somebody has to come to the door, has to tell you what's going on. Somebody has to introduce you to the concept. And that opens up a lot of other opportunities, but somebody has to do that. And right. in, ter- in terms of feeling safe, that's where it starts. Because people don't feel safe if they aren't even included. They're, they're, there's the exclusion that goes on from the beginning. And if you're, right. you don't feel safe being in, involved in anything that you're absolutely excluded from. The signs are up. Everything is there to say you don't belong here. We don't want you here. Uh, So why, why would that be good for you? Why would that be? And even sometimes as your early experience talked about, even sometimes you get included, but you're not really a part. You don't feel belonging. You know, you feel I'm here, but it doesn't really feel like I'm really a part of, uh, of this organization. So, uh, so you joined the Fulton County fire department and uh, I, you know, I, you, you do all the things that everyone else does. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I recall, so uh, so we met in 2001. Uh, I show you. up, yeah, I show up as uh, the new fire chief. And, and, you know, I may have shared this with you or not, but I had never been a fire chief before in my entire life. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I came from Seattle. And one of the reasons that I decided to go someplace else is because I thought I would never be able to be the fire chief there for all kinds of reasons. And a lot of it, I perceived, or the feedback that I got is, "Well, you're always too young." You, I mean, you know, I so I started out there very young, a couple of years out of high school, and people always saw me as a as a kid. They always treated me like a kid, and uh, you know, I got you know moved around, got a lot of promotions, did all that stuff, but they always treated me like a kid. At least that's what it felt like to me. So I felt like I needed to go someplace where people didn't necessarily know that history. So I come rolling in as the fire chief in Fulton County and that you and a number of other people, uh, we had some, you know, had some interesting times. <laughs> so, we did. so, and, and, and frankly, I don't think I necessarily knew, and this is, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about this, that there is a difference between the folks who come in in the C-suite or in right. the, the director, the the manager, the, the, the top level position, the people who aren't at the top level. You don't often know what's going on until people tell you. So, Correct. yeah, so, so you know, share a little bit about what was going on, you know, just before you, you know, decided to, to get promoted there. What was, you know, what was what was life like <laughs> at the time?
1: <laughs> uh, that's a funny story, too. So, you know, when I came to Fulton County, obviously, I was expecting that it would be different. I thought that, you know, I'm going to a larger municipality. It's more diverse. Uh, it's not so black and white or male, female. So I'm thinking that I'm going to some place that's going to open some opportunities for me. And because I had had this previous experience, it was easier for me to map out what I wanted for my you, you know near future with the department. Um, but when I got there, I found that it was much the same as what mm-hmm. I had already left, which was surprising to me. There were just different players. Um, and I was still in that space where I was having to do a lot of juxtapositioning and assimilating. So, you know, let me, let, I didn't tell you this, but it's so embarrassing now, but I was smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, <laughs> hanging, that just crazy stuff I was doing, trying to be a part. Right. And none of those things were who I was naturally. They, none of it resonated with me, but that's how, especially as younger people, I think that's where we get caught up because you want that feeling of community so bad, and then one of the things that we talk about as firefighters so often is the family. You know, we talk, oh, this is a family, not necessarily so, but but so you end up compromising things that are important to you to be a part of the family. So I left Albany thinking that I was going to someplace better and ended up in much the same situation uh, because the attitudes were basically the same. Now, there were women on this department, but there were Uh, no really, there were Black women as well, but they were being treated the same way as I was being treated. I think the difference though, is that I've always been the type that can navigate through that and still see where the light is through the crack you know, and try to get myself to it. So I, if, if I have to say there's a gift that I was given, that probably was it. So when I came, I was able to block out some of that because I'd already had that experience. And I said, this time I can shape my own, um, you know, ideas about how I'm gonna navigate these things. So I put, a, put together a career plan and I started working that plan. And I was able to get a couple of, you know, promotions before you came. I went from like firefighter to firefighter to, and I had done that. Uh, two classes ahead, because um, what happened was when we came out of recruit school, one of the requirements was to, for your firefighter two was that you had to be an EMT. So I was in class. We had about eighteen or twenty. I forget how many people got hired, but it was down to eleven. Only three of us were black. I was the only female, and then everybody else was you know white male. So I tell the other two guys, the two black guys, I said, "Listen, when we get out of school, we should just go on and get our EMT, and that'll put us." Uh, uh, in line for our next at least two promotions they said oh we're tired you know we just went through this i don't want to do it i said okay well sayonara i'm going to school so i went and got my emt and got my national registry and did all those things and so for the next two promotions i just went and got my my uh leadership and uh i think it was like mcto leadership and some other things that i needed to round out those certifications so i was on the path of doing the things that i needed to do to get those promotions. Well, I got the the next one that was available to me. And then by some, I would say stroke of serendipity, this wonderful man from Seattle, Washington came to be the fire chief in the city, uh, in the uh, uh, Folsom County. Now, the ironic thing is we didn't know each other then. You know what I mean? So we our friendship really blossomed after you left. So we didn't really know each other, but I loved the way that you thought about how we should be doing fire service. It was such a breath of fresh air because I had been steeped in the tradition of fire service. And you certainly brought a new, fresh perspective, a new look. It was so forward thinking and and so out there. I was like, man, this is, I like this. This is like how I see myself really, you know, growing and becoming uh, successful in this industry. Because before that, I felt like I was in mud. You know, it was very slow and I just didn't see a a path forward with the way things were going. So when you came uh, and when you were espousing your ideas and your theories about not even theories, because it was really action uh, about how we should take this organization forward and really become world-class and I started to see those things coming to fruition see I'm not big on talking people talk a lot I like action when you start that because the truth is in the action and you were very action oriented so I wanted to be a part of that and um, I started to whatever you laid out in terms of how we move forward I wanted to be in those classes take advantage of those opportunities and do that so I'm going to tell you what lit a fire in me again this is one of those times uh, when that got me promoted so there was a promotional process. You had published our study materials and you know, whatever the things were that we were gonna do. So I was at a double house. There were about 16 people there. Uh and there were, I think it, out of the 16, two of us were African American. And might have been three at that time, because I think somebody had just transferred there. And they were not very friendly to me either. They didn't want me to drive, they didn't want me to, you know, it was just, you know, they would Monday nights were wrestling Thursday nights with NASCAR or whatever it was we were doing Thursday night whatever it was but it was NASCAR and wrestling I never was included in any of that stuff Um, if we had to do dishes or something I would have to do it on my own but if they had to do it they would all gather around and do it together they made it very known that they did not like me and did not want me there so I just found my own little cubby and you know did my own thing well when it came time for the promotions I'll never forget this there were 108 people who applied for that position, if if my my memory serves me correctly. We were sitting, at that time, we didn't have whiteboards, we had chalkboards. So one of the guys gets up and he writes on the chalkboard everybody's name that he could remember that applied for the job. And I think there were about nine women on the list and then everybody else was male. So as they were going down, they would check the list and say, yes, he'll get it. Yes, he'll get it. No, he won't get it. Yes, he'll get it. So they just did a yes, no. Well, when they got to my name and some of the guys at the station who had applied, they put yes by their names. So when they got to my name, they said no. I was like, what? And they kept going, but it lit a fire in me. That ticked me off so bad because they had been having study groups and they wouldn't include me, which I didn't, I'm not a study group type of person, but I just noticed that, you know, I was never invited to the study groups. So they would all study together at the station. I said, okay. So I made up in my mind right then, I said, Andrea is getting promoted. So I took off actually the next shift. I I went in and asked if I could be on vacation. They said, yes. I went home. I gathered every bit of study material that was on that list. I sequestered myself. I turned the phones off for five days i did nothing but devour that information and go through scenarios and write out scenarios i had a stack of index cards and cue cards and and that's all i did all day for five days and so i think it was a tuesday that my test was scheduled i took that monday off i went and bought two suits so my mom was like why are you buying two suits i said because i one is for the uh the initial process and the second is for my interview Mm -hmm. So she was like, oh, okay. I said, yes, because I'm going to make captain. And I went into the process and the rest is essentially history. I did get promoted. And I think if my memory serves me correctly, I was number four out of 108 people. And had I been studying before those five days, I probably would have come out number one, but it took them diminishing, I think, my potential for me to say, let me get this thing in gear so they actually did me a favor because you know
0: sometimes that's that's what it takes and, and and you are correct uh I I still keep those records around for some days I go back and look at them and yeah you were you know fourth on the list I did recall there were so many people the organization had 450 I guess I should have just done the math yeah 100. but it, it, yeah and you know and it was a you know, a, a, a pretty interesting list of people. You know, as I recall, the nine or 10 of you that were promoted first have all gone on to do some very, very exciting things. And Great. one of the things that you decided to do after becoming a fire captain was uh, you started thinking about your role as a leader and uh, got involved a little bit in the labor movement. So this 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 moves forward. So the Fulton County Fire Department ceases to exist, and the right. South, the City of South Fulton is created uh, back in 2017. You transition over to the City of South Fulton again as a captain, and tell me a little bit about that. You know, uh, the becoming a union president. What? what? <laughs> How did that happen?
1: Yeah, that's interesting too. I, you know, I've always been when. So, so the interesting thing about that is there were times when I was not even allowed to join the union. I had asked earlier and they were like, nah, this isn't for you. You know, because it, we had a, a chapter of the uh, IABPFF as well. And so they were like, yeah, that's y'all's union. And I was like, what do you mean y'all's union? So I wasn't allowed to join the IAFF. They were like, nope, you, you know, you, you don't have access. So then a couple of years later, I think I had been with the county at about 10 years at that point. And so I was able to join then I think they probably needed members. So they're like, come on and join. (laughs) So I joined, but I was not very active, you know, just like most union members are, I just was there on the roster and, uh, felt like it was something important to be a part of, because I understood, I think maybe not specifically, but I did understand the importance of that organization. Um, so I, I didn't have any, um, You know, real specific duties as it relates to that, I just was on the roster. And um, so, what happened was, you know, in 2004, I was promoted, but unfortunately, from that time to this, I was never able to get another promotion. And I had tried several times to make battalion chief and just was not afforded that opportunity. So, I had gotten to a place in my career where I was really just kind of cruising along. I said, you know, I'm just going to ride this out until retirement. And that had to be at the uh, point where I knew we were going over to the city of South Fulton. And I said, you know, I'm just going to do my five years and get out of here. So as we were going to the city of South Fulton, the local chapter that we had of the IEFF had lost its charter. Mm. They were in jeopardy of like being no more. And the president at the time came to me and said, Andrea, you know, I would like for you to have a more active, role in the union and i was like shoot no i don't want to be bothered i have others i'm cruising i don't want any responsibility just leave me alone because i want to cruise so he kept coming back and talking to me about it and so he finally said hey there's a meeting that we're having if you could just come to this meeting i won't bother you anymore so i went to that meeting and there was some field reps from uh the international that had come to talk about the fate of our local because we had uh Given up, you know, we had lost our charter, so they wanted to amalgamate us and bring us in with some other uh, departments. So as I'm listening to this, then that piqued my interest. I'm like, well, what happened? What's the backstory? Why is this happening? Because we are like the big brother to all these other cities, and you're saying now if we do this, somebody from a smaller two-station department could be our president, making decisions for us. No. So I went to the gentleman afterwards, and I said, hey, um, what is? Are there any options? for us. Do we have to lose our charter? He was like, nope, it's done. There's no other option. I said, there are always options. What he said was, no, he said, there's a 90% chance you can. I said, okay, well, what about the 10%? What do we need to do for the 10%? And so he just kind of looked at me. He said, well, let me go back and talk with my superiors and we'll see what can happen. So he reached out to me. He gave me a laundry list of things that needed to be done in the next 90 days. I was like, dog, I don't know if we can do it. Well, we're going to do it. And so I said, so if I do all these things, we'll get our charter back and we can remain local 3920. He said yes. So I went to work right then getting those things done. We had to have an election. So I was elected president at that time. And then I started checking those things off that list. I also understood that it was important for us to redefine who we were. To, to, to sort of, because see the relationship prior to that, people had a very negative opinion of unions. They were like, oh, they're just rebel rousers, start trouble, they complain about everything. And so I really wanted to change the face of that. I wanted to rebrand us and let them know that this is more of, a, we're, we're here to collaborate. You know, we want to add value to the community. There are things that we have, resources that we have available to us that are supportive of the community at large, not just the firefighters. So I wanted to demonstrate that. I wanted to put a new face on it. So those are some things that we were working on in the process. And that is how I ended up becoming the president of our local.
0: Wow. 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 It's uh, some of those uh, details. I don't know the... I had heard some of those uh, details before, so you become president, mm-hmm. and uh, again, I, I mentioned the, the historic nature of you becoming president because, if, again, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you are the only Black female International Association of Firefighters president ever. Is that, that accurate, right?
1: You know, I you know, I would have to fact check that. I, I have to be <laughs> careful because I want to fact check it, but right? I don't think that there are any that I'm aware of. It may be one someplace in Mississippi. I'm not sure. Right. I, I can't speak to that with any real, so I have to go to the archives or the historians at the uh, IAF and and confirm that. I'm not sure. Right,
0: though. right, but but cer- certainly the the only one that you'd ever seen. <laughs> yes,
1: the only one yeah, I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I yeah. and
0: certainly the seen only it. one that that I'd ever seen. And, and and somehow you know in within short order, so you become president, and mm-hmm. uh, the we you know we have an election and. A, 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 a new president is elected, despite what some might say. <laughs> a right. new president is elected, and, and there's, there's an inauguration ceremony, and you get asked to participate. So, talk. We have to slip a little bit of conversation in about that. So, how'd, how'd that come about? Well,
1: uh, so in February of 2019, I became the president of uh, Local 3920. Uh, I also knew that there was some legislation. Uh, in the state of Georgia that would allow for firefighters to collectively bargain. Uh, they, you know, there's a two-part process. You first have to be legally recognized by your city. So that became a goal for me, uh, to do whatever was necessary to get that legal uh, that legal recognition. It's uh, Georgia State Code 25-5-4. It's the Firefighter me- firefighters mediation act, is what it's called in Georgia. So Fortunately, we were able to uh, get one of our city council members to sponsor that legislation for us in July of 2019. She was able to sponsor it for us, uh, and it was uh, unanimously passed as uh, an ordinance in the city of South Fulton. As a result of that, that was really a historical moment for us because it had never been done ever in the state of Georgia. No one had ever been able to get that legal recognition in their municipality. So that was sort of what put me on the radar with the IFF, with the international, with the, the GP at the time. And uh, that was a huge sort of win for labor very early on for us. And um, so, you know, we're moving on about now trying to figure out how to take care of that second step, which was getting a collective bargaining agreement and many people don't know, but there was a lot of transition at the at the helm of our department. We've had four, let me see, five fire chiefs since 2018. And so with all of the instability, it was difficult to nail someone down and say, hey, let's negotiate this contract. Um, it was just very challenging to do. So um, as fate would have it, you know, and we'll talk about that later. But because of that, in July 2019, getting that legal recognition, it put me on the radar. So moving forward, the international decided to endorse Joe Biden very early on, and they did it really to the behest of a lot of their members. You know, a lot of their members are Republican in their personal lives, although the organization is a Democratic organization, you know, labor is Democratic generally. So a lot of the membership, though, the individual members were not very pleased with that endorsement. So the general president at the time, Harold Shapeberger, took a lot of flack and the organization took a lot of flack for making that public endorsement and doing it so quickly. So um, when the president became the president elect, I think as a show of appreciation for uh, GP Shapeburger, you know, standing behind his endorsement he asked if he would send someone to participate in the inauguration on behalf of the firefighters to represent the IEFF. So I received a call in December of 2020 asking if I would participate. You know, there is something a little serendipitous I would like to share with you about that as well if I have time. Uh, Just prior to that, there had been an opportunity for me to be promoted to battalion chief again. And I was the union president. Of course, of course you know, sometimes a union president is not the most popular person in the organization because, you know, they have they they keep people on the straight and narrow. Well, um, there had been what was supposed to be considered a competitive process for uh, battalion chief. We had a new fire chief then as well. And he came in talking about diversity, equity and inclusion and how important that was for him. Um, That he wanted to put a process in place that will be scored and that will be fair and give people an opportunity. I said, "Well, shoot, and be competitive." So I said, "Well, if it's a competitive process, I don't think there's anybody here that can compete essentially because I I think I'm the best and most qualified person for this position." Well, we go through the process. This was in February of 2020, and uh, as we go through the process, and I, you know, do whatever's done, and the list comes out, and the the list or the scores bore out what I thought. I came out number one on the list by a fairly large margin. And although we took the testing process in February, we didn't get the results until April. And I was like, what is taking so long to get these results? So we get the results like April 1st. And lo and behold, I did not get promoted. Hmm. I was like, I was devastated. I think that's the most devastated I have ever been about anything that has happened to me in the fire service. And I was devastated and angry. I was, oh my God, I was so angry. I was so angry with him. Like I wanted to do bodily harm to this guy because I felt like he had duped me, you know? And, um, the, you know, no. So when I was asking, what, how did you make this decision? He left two days later. So I never got... You know, he he resigned two days later. I never got an explanation. I thought about suing and all these other things. I was just all over the place. I was so angry. And I think I had like a little mini nervous breakdown, to be honest with you, I, that because that's the most angry and hurt I've ever been embarrassed, because I felt like him doing that almost sort of co-signed on all the other eight or nine times I had been passed over. It was almost like him adding validity to what the previous chief had had said that I didn't deserve this promotion. So I was really devastated. So I ended up taking some time off, to be honest with you, because I needed to just, I needed some mental health days. I was really struggling with that. And so this goes back to being the union president, right? So as a union president, there were things that were happening uh, with this particular chief that were not really correct. But because I wanted my promotion, I said, you know, I'm not gonna rock the boat and address that, I'll just leave it alone because I don't wanna make anybody mad, I want my promotion. Well, needless to say, when this happened, and I didn't get the promotion, I was furious. But when I t- took that time to step away, and I so really my ask was, because I remember I was just so downtrodden, I was sitting in the living room crying, bawling like a baby, and I said, show me myself in this. Show me my contribution to what has happened. Because I do believe in everything that happens with us. There's something that we are contributing, even if it's apathy. We are contributing to certain outcomes. So what I found was I really wasn't angry with him. I was angry with myself because I did not stand on my principles and I still lost. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's, so the lesson from that in that for me was that there's never a reason to compromise anything that is that, you know, if you're principled about something, never a reason to do that. And so once I had that realization that it was really me that I was angry about, I was upset with myself for compromising and still losing. See, it's different when you stand on your principles and you take an L, but to compromise yourself and still lose, ooh. So once I had that realization, I was fine. I went back to work, moving on with my life, moving on with my retirement plan. Lo and behold, I get a call December, 2020. I would like for you to represent the firefighters in this inauguration. I go do this thing that's really beautiful. And um, you know I'm able to do the pledge in two languages and a lot of people benefit from this. But had I gotten that promotion, that never would have been possible. Mm. And so that taught me a very valuable lesson as well. Sometimes when you think you're losing, you're really winning.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, such, a, such a powerful story about serendipity and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know circumstances lining up in ways that you didn't expect. Right. So you 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 get this opportunity. It, it, it brings you know again national attention. Matter of fact, international in some cases because the the second language was American Sign Language. And I have to tell you, I've known you for years and had no idea that you could sign. Not no, And that's, that's something I've noticed about our relationship. Is there's a lot you know. As I asked that question earlier, you know who is Andrea Hall? There are lots of things that folks just don't necessarily know because it's not you know it's not really it's not all that present and just and it, but it's there. So you have this opportunity, you become the president, you go to the inauguration, you come back and uh, you get this idea about collective bargaining. And and the American South is mm-hmm. not the place that people have collect they're, they don't have collective bargaining agreements in in virtually anything. As a matter of fact, there is a perception by some again, that unions are bad, and you know, they, they're just going to be a bunch of trouble. But underneath that, there are workers often who don't feel that they have a voice who don't feel right. that they're being treated properly who are not, you know, their, their wages are not great, their hours are all over the place there, you know, right. the health and safety is challenged. So, so t- tell us a little bit about that whole idea about having a a collective bargaining agreement with firefighters in Georgia, is that possible?
1: Uh, Obviously it's possible, we've done it. So, um, and we did it with your help actually. So I I will say this, you know, this is another one of those times where somebody kind of ticked me off and it just was like, it's time. So I think that might be a theme. So what happened was, you know, this was always in the back of my mind that we needed to do this, but there was, like I said, there was so much transition. It was just never, the timing was never good. And um, so we finally get a new fire chief, but we're also in the throes of the pandemic. And there were policies being written left and right that were not considerate of the, the uh, firefighters. So one particular policy that was written was about COVID testing. So if there were people who in, in the department who were not vaccinated, they were subject to mandatory testing. But there was only one day a week during a particular window of time that they could be tested well, obviously we work a schedule that requires at least three days of opportunity to get this done. And it was mandatory, but there were no provisions made to, um, you know, in consideration of those schedules. So I ended up writing a letter to our uh, city manager and to the HR director. And I asked simply two things, will there be um, uh, compensation for the firefighters who have to go off-duty and away from their homes to get this testing? Will they be compensated for the time there and their travel? Or will accommodations be made so that they can get this testing on duty? So I submit the uh, email. I never hear anything back. It's a week or two weeks past, I don't hear anything. So I go down to the office to speak with someone and say, hey, did you get my email? Oh yeah, we got the email. I said, okay. They said, you didn't get a response? I said, no, I didn't. And they said, oh, well, we looked everywhere and you don't have a contract. We couldn't find a contract. Now that was in October. And I said, oh, and when I raised my finger like this, there's going to be some problems. I said, no worries. I said, you have one forthcoming. <laughs> that let me know they were ready. Right. 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 So if you're looking for it, that means we need to get you one. Right. So November 8th, we submitted our proposal to bargain, our request to bargain. I'm sorry. We submitted our request to bargain and that started that process. Um, So from November 8th to May 25th, uh, we went through the negotiations process and all the up, down, turnaround, whatever about that. We'll do a whole nother podcast on that (laughs) Um, that process. But on May 25th, uh, we were able to get a unanimous vote by council in the affirmative, adopting our first a uh, collective bargaining agreement in the city of South Fulton really in the state of Georgia
0: right, right. <laughs> so this 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 agreement was for firefighters but it was also the first collective bargaining agreement with any group of employees with the city of South Fulton that's accurate that
1: is correct right, right. Yes.
0: so 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 what at least in your opinion how and i and i started off the the, the podcast today talking about the fact that Imbalance in power is a mm-hmm. psychosocial hazard in and of itself because one party feels like they 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 don't have the same access, they don't have the same opportunities, they don't have the same anything that and, and often there is an imbalance between the employer who mm-hmm. says well, you work here, you do what we tell you to do, and the worker always feeling subservient. Uh, right. Correct. Collective bargaining, and, and particularly a contract agreement, it just brings both parties to the table and gives both the opportunity right. to share some of the some of the power. You know, re- and, and so do you think others uh, can and or will benefit from that kind of mentality? Absolutely. I think so.
1: Uh, I think it's going to take some work in terms of education and training around the benefits of what we were able to accomplish, because I think there are a lot of uh, misinformed people about why this is so valuable. Um, And you're right. I don't don't know if I would use the word power so much, but it's certainly a balance of responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, it delineates what the responsibilities are, and it gives both people an opportunity to converse about what's most important to them, and then find something, find a way to uh, collaborate around those subjects, and then get things done. Uh, I, you know, a lot of times when we say power, because that's what people are in search of, uh, it makes them want to maintain it even more. You know, because they feel like they're losing something instead of gaining something. I think one of the things that I I also realize is that in the South, where we are, you know, the South has a very complicated relationship with labor. Um, But generally, the people who get the short end of the stick are the ones who are needed to move organizations forward. If the people in the C-suite don't show up to work for weeks, it doesn't matter, the work will still get done. If one or two people don't show up from the working category, it's going to be problematic. And so I think uh, we don't look at things, uh, you know, we, we don't consider what value people do bring because we're someplace else moving widgets and whiteboards. You know, one of my favorite shows is Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but that's one of my favorite shows because it it gives you sort of a real um, idea about how these things work. You have a gentleman or a woman who's sitting up on her perch and she's living the lavish life on her yacht and they're taking family vacations and all these exotic places and all this other stuff, but you're having some challenges in your business. You know, you're losing revenue or something's going on. So you say, hey, I need to put on this disguise and go down and find out what's going on at the lowest levels of my operation. What happens is they go down and they put on all these little things and they try to get hired in their own company. They go through the training process and most of the time the critique for them is that we wouldn't hire them. You can't even get hired in your own company and then they also find out that a lot of the rules and regulations that they've put in place are just not appropriate mm. they're not appropriate and they see how they're abusing people and how they're misusing their workers and you you often see this huge sort of light bulb go off on them and they say i want to make this right i want to be a better employer i want to be a better so i think collective bargaining is a similar situation it gives the people in the c-suite an opportunity to come down off the perch and to meet with the people who are actually doing the work for them to get a better understanding and see why the input from those people is so valuable even to their success right
0: right so
1: yeah
0: -hmm. yeah that, that that's important and and uh, a great point that you make about the use of the word power, and I, I I did that somewhat intentionally because they're the generation that is in leadership for the most part. There, there are mm-hmm. many many exceptions, but for the most part, comes from a generation that believes that a lot of this is about power, and it's not. It's not. Right. It, it, it's about whatever it is that we got together to do, whether that be a fire department, a bakery, uh, <laughs> build roads, uh, make widgets. It is about accomplishing the goal that we all got together to, to, uh, to accomplish. And that gets lost when, there is a, when there's not a balance in efforts and rewards for people. People I- are not going to put in the supreme effort when they don't feel like they're being rewarded. And my perception of reward. And their perception may be different. That's what collective bargaining does: is helps us, management, labor, top, however, workers, administrators, however, people segregate themselves. And some, unfortunately, there's a lot of that that goes on. If you know, organizations are segregated into those people and us,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it's not good for either group. It really isn't. And 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 again, having you know, now having been on both the labor and the management side of this process. You know, it. it and I, f- I felt this way all along. Just didn't have the necessarily the opportunity to do it because a guy who's been in management is perceived by labor as well. You know, he's just with them. And there are some of us who are really just about what's right. You know, And 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 the role that people are in is just that it's a role. But how does it contribute to what it is that we are trying to do? Again, I. Th- this has been. Uh, quite an experience seeing, you know, for you know, seeing folks like you make the transition from, you know, not really knowing where I'm going to now being very clear, and also now trying to lay the foundation for other people to follow you. I mean, that, right. that, that's important. I, I've always felt that it's just as important uh, how much uh, space you make for others as it is the space you make for yourself. So, Absolutely. So- so you've now transitioned, uh, you know, you retired from fire services, but as I said, really not kind of just kind of changed roles. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. Uh, so, so, so what do you what do you see next for uh for Andrea Hall? What's what's out there next for you?
1: You know, that's always an interesting question when people ask me that, Um, and and I have to harken back to the inauguration. You know, I used to be a to-do list maker, right? Everything was on a to-do list, a timeline. I'm going to do this in a year. I'm going to do this in six months. I'm going to, okay. What that experience taught me is that I really don't make plans like that anymore because Going to the inauguration was nowhere on my to-do list. I never could have fathomed that that opportunity would come up for me. So now I just kind of obey, you know what I mean? I just kind of follow directions and I follow my intuition. And so my intuition has now led me to the International Association of Firefighters. So I have taken a position with the International Association of Firefighters where I now can have a greater, I would say, um, reach in terms of helping our, you know, my siblings in the fire service with collective bargaining and other health and safety related issues that are, that the fire service is challenged with. I think that was the best, most next progressive move that I could make because the International Association of Firefighters is a powerful institution that works specifically on the behalf of firefighters. And I just wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of an organization that uh, is so focused on the challenges of the American firefighter, well, international firefighter, um, and, and that is all they do. They have a very hedgehog focus on making the lives of firefighters, the quality of life, the quality of their work life and family life better. And that's certainly something that I've always aspired to. And so it, it just was a natural progression for me. So I'll be working on um, you know some things to help with collective bargaining, especially in the South, Uh, issues around our health and safety, legislation, policy, those sorts of things. You know, you mentioned something earlier about management and people in management in the C-suite being good people and just wanting to do the right thing. I wanted to go back to that. You're absolutely right. I think I think people in management sometimes are in a harder position than we're in because we can say exactly what you know, we want to see happen at the end of the day. But sometimes people in management are at cross purposes with their um, the people that they're responsible to, whether it's a board of directors or the city manager or the, the council or whatever their policymakers are. Sometimes they can find themselves in interesting situations when they want to advocate for a group of people. But what I think is it requires a lot of courage to do the right thing. And sometimes you get beat up for that. You take a lot of losses for being principled. And I, I would like to say that's one of the things that I so appreciate about you. You are a principled person. You've really led by example. And I definitely consider you uh, one of my best, greatest, most favorite people in the entire world because that's something that I relate to. We have that in common. And I do believe that the greatest sort of accomplishments in the world have taken place by principal people. You think about Abraham Lincoln, he lost his life. He lost his life because he understood man's inhumanity to man and he wanted to do something about it. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Obviously, I don't necessarily want to make that, but <laughs> but what I'm saying is it takes that quality. It takes that sort of firm resolution to uh, stand on your principles and to do the right thing for those who can't not do it for themselves. And so that's sort of the position that I take uh, on anything that I do undertake. Now, I'm just not out here willy-nilly doing stuff, but I do it with a purpose, and I do want to impact uh people positively and that was one of the things i was thinking about too had i gotten that promotion to battalion chief that just would have been a unilateral benefit to me it would have been a singular benefit but being able to get this collective bargaining agreement will is is impacting hundreds maybe even thousands of lives positively for for future generations to come that is more fulfilling uh to me than any title or promotion i could have gotten
0: right Right. And, and as we as we talked about, the other important aspect of a collective bargaining agreement is the cementing of the relationship. But because ultimately, that's really what it's about. It's it cements the relationship between both parties and creates clarity around what our roles are. Often the lack of safety on either side of the relationship is a lack of understanding of the role. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. It's kind of ambiguous, and it changes. And I'm not really sure if I can. And what? And and I, you know, something that you uh, that I heard you mention just uh, a few moments ago is uh, the fact that sometimes you get re- at cross purposes with you know the folks that you work for as a manager. I encourage even managers. You still have to be principled because you're you are not doing your business, your community a favor by mistreating other people you are not i I, and i've shared this with you know with certainly my elected officials the one who represent me i don't want to pay lower taxes if it requires you to exploit people to do it i don't want to do that i'm not saying you know that i'm independently wealthy and want to spend most of my but if 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 i ask people in the public to do things for me on my behalf I believe that they should be treated fairly and equitably and kindly, because ultimately, if I don't, you know, and I've shared this with folks is, I mean, I I, matter of fact, I believe I was the only taxpayer from our community that was in the room when these negotiations are going on. I said, it was selfish. Because I want great service from great people. And I know that if you mistreat them, ultimately, I'm not going to get the service I deserve that I pay for. And I believe that across the board is that when you treat people with dignity and respect and kindness, if you do that, it always comes back to you. It always comes back to you. Tenfold. It, it, it just, Tenfold. It just and if we all do it for each other, it's all going to pack come back to all of us. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so much more we could talk about, but uh, I, I do want folks to continue to chime in and, and listen, so I can't go too long. And So, so <laughs> some, 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 some closing thoughts you have, particularly about the importance of, uh, of people being able to stand for themselves and, and work together. Share a little, bit, a little bit about that as we close.
1: Well, I do think it's important for people to be able to stand for themselves. However, we know, and historically, there's going to be a few that stand for the many. And so I, I, you know, my life, I think, has been centered around that principle. And I've, I've fortunately or unfortunately been one of the few in most circumstances who stand for the many. But I take that on, I think at this point in my life, graciously and and um thankfully, I, I with gratitude because I think it's a gift to be able to do that. Um, what I think for people who are in those positions, it is it's not a think it's a thankless position sometimes to be in, because you do a lot for people who don't always appreciate your contribution. But I think it's not for me. I would say to anyone who is trailblazing or who is uh, taking on the mantle for someone else is that I don't think that we should go into it expecting any sort of real gratitude or uh, thankfulness or acknowledgement. I think you do it because it is the right thing and you understand that at some point the reward is rich. Mm -hmm. It may not come from the people you think it should, but it will. And so I, you know, I I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, um, that's what came to me in that moment.
0: That's, that's absolutely important. Uh, It's been, uh, again, just a privilege to be able to have you uh, as a part of this episode uh, of the podcast. Uh, Again, you you know that I'm certainly one of uh, your admirers as well uh, (laughs) about what you've been able to accomplish. And I see great potential for even greater things in the future. Uh, I'm sure that uh, it won't be long. We'll have you back and have some other conversations because again, I, I, I honestly believe that the extent to which an environment can be created where everyone can feel a part, where everyone's voice can be heard, it's gonna be psychologically healthy and safe for everyone. Absolutely. So that's it. Yeah, that, that that that's what we have to share this uh, for this episode. Uh, we'll certainly, uh, for those of you who want to, so, so if folks want to, you know, want to ask you other questions, is there a way that people can get a hold of you? Do you have a way for people to find you so they just get, get to me and I'll connect you?
1: Uh, yeah, that might be good for them to get to you, but they can, uh, I am on some social media. I have no idea what that is. I'm so sorry, but I don't, but I mean, obviously if someone wanted to reach, connect with me, they can email me at Andrea M hall foundation at gmail.com. That would be the best way to connect me. I I get those emails every day and uh, I am responsive. So uh, that will be the best way for them to contact me. And obviously I have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all those things. I just don't know any of those handles. They can (laughs) probably do a a search bar for Andrea M. Hall. uh, And then we can connect that way.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been great having you and uh, we certainly appreciate your contributions, not only to this podcast, but to society as a whole. Uh, Thanks very much. And uh, that's it. Uh, That's what we have to share for this episode, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time on the Psych, Health, and Safety USA podcast. You've been listening to the Psych, Health, and Safety USA podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.